IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we review new albums by Destroyer and Oso Oso. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. Hi, friends. He has left Arcade Fire. <laughs> Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yes, I've left Arcade Fire, but I have joined Amusement Parks on Fire, which I think th- I heard that that band is still active. So that's a real Remember Some Guys cut. Yeah. I, that, that is beyond me. I don't know that band at all. Yeah, they were like a shoegaze band that like had absolutely nothing at all to do with Arcade Fire, but like also made an album in 2004, so... Um, they also had uh, Comets on Fire back then. Com- well, Comets had- on Fire, I, I, yeah, that's an IndieCast Hall of Fame type band. I used to yeah, rock. Yeah, uh, What's that one with the blue cover? Blue Cathedral. Yeah, that one. Fuck, that one's sick. Um, any any other fire bands from the uh, 2000s? That we, we'll probably think of a million. Yeah, before, yeah. Right I'm, we, we're uh, just gonna be talking recording. about Destroyer, and all of a sudden, like some band that was on like uh, Danger Bird Records in 2004 will pop into my head. Um, uh, but yeah, we should, you know, for those who don't know, uh, <laughs> in my uh, intro to Ian, I was referencing uh, the big indie news of the week, which yeah. uh, very rudely dropped over the weekend after our episode posted. I, I just want to say to indie bands, if you're going to have a resignation, do it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, mm-hmm. preferably Wednesday by, say, you know, end of business so that Ian and I can address <laughs> it on the podcast. Otherwise, it feels like we're talking about old news. But yeah. this is a big story in the indie world. Will Butler uh, has quit Arcade Fire. Not Win Butler. Win Butler is the is the front man. Yes. Will Butler is his brother. Mm-hmm. Will Butler is like the utility infielder. Yeah. Of Arcade Fire. I remember, I don't know if you ever saw this, they were on Austin City Limits. I think this was Suburbs era. That episode culminates with Will Butler picking up a potted plant and like banging it. Like he's playing a plant. Like that's how... Are you sure that's not the helmet guy? Not... Who's the helmet guy? Richard Reed Parry. No, it's uh, a, no, he... no, it was definitely Will Butler. Okay. Because Will Butler was the um, excitable one. In arcade, I feel like he was the most uh, demonstrative. In the he he'd be running around, he'd be banging a drum, you know. He's like dancing behind a, like a keyboard. He's playing a potted plant. Like that was Will Butler. I I like Will Butler in Arcade Fire. Like when I saw them, he was one of the most entertaining people to watch uh, on stage. Uh, even though it's not quite clear like what he did in the band, he kind of you know playing a keyboard. He's banging a drum. He's playing a potted plant. You know, whatever the song called for. Isn't there like a guy in pavement that sort of had that role? Like that's Bob, but but I, I think he basically just kind of screamed though. I don't think he was. Maybe he was banging a drum. I don't know. Well, now now that it, hopefully Arcade Fire will make another record uh, soon after we and we'll figure out like oh yeah this is definitely post Will Butler. But you know what? Well, I, hey, you just referenced the name of the new album. I feel like we have to fill in people. The, the <laughs> new album is called We Arcade Fire. They announced this record. Uh, last week we we talked about this that uh, in our previous episode that they were going to be releasing a single, and that single dropped almost immediately after we got done recording. Which again, <laughs> Arcade Fire, yeah, you know, not not great. I mean, Will Butler announcing this uh, resignation also seems like bad timing because yeah. Arcade Fire they, they released this single, The Lightning One and Two. It's like two songs, mm-hmm. 
And it seemed like the buzz online was positive, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it seems like people are into the song, and I think you and I like it. Yeah. Right? I mean, I was into it. Yeah, I, I like this song. I mean, I think there's like a pretty obvious, uh, hey, we're getting back to basics. We're doing what Arcade Fire does, um, particularly in the second half. And I think, like, look, I think that the reception overall is positive. I think they've got momentum going into this. I also think that, like, you know, Will Butler leaving Arcade Fire as as opposed to multiple allegations have come forth about Will Butler, which I've seen plenty of happen to plenty bands. But, you know, like what, there are two things that come up as far as like this song and the reception to it. First off, I mean, I think we just kind of like, I just, I'm just left to wonder like, man, how bad must it be to be in arcade fire? If you are the utility guy, you know, you're not really writing the songs, you know, there's not a lot of pressure. Your brother's in the band um, and it seems like pretty cushy as far as like big indie rock uh, positions go. You know, it's like being like the 10th man on an NBA franchise. You know, you're not the dude, but you're still a millionaire. Um, yeah, but maybe you want to be on the court. You know, maybe yeah. Will's like, hey, because he's made solo records that are, you know, pretty solid solo. Yeah, I mean, I don't they're, think they're spectacular. They're good. good. He may be like, I don't want to be the twelfth man. I want to. I want to be the main yeah, butler. Put me I don't in coach. Wanna... I'm ready to play. You know. He's probably mad at his parents because they named the other guy Win. It's like his name's Win. Yeah. It just seems like <laughs> it's predestined that he's going to be the dominant one. Is that short he... for something? Is he like Winfred? Be. Winfred Butler or like Winston or? I never. It's got to be. Right. It's got to be short for something like fancy like that. I love that the last name is Butler too, because it just makes you think of butlers. Hi, <laughs> Butler. Exactly. Uh, but I, I was just gonna say, like, don't you think that this uh, uh, departure by Will Butler? It's a little weird. The timing of it. It's. He said that he's been out of the band for a while now. Dan Beckner was playing with them ah. uh, on stage. Why would he announce it right after they announced the single? It just seemed like it kind of sucked the air out of the momentum for that song. Yeah. Look, I mean, we are used to at least, you know, post-suburbs, Arcade Fire have pretty, like, uh, involved in uh, multimedia album rollouts. I mean, maybe this is, like, you know, the precursor to Will Butler getting back together and bearing out the Wii concept. Because I think we do have to mention, I think the Muse album dropped on this, or uh, was announced on the same day. Um, and, you know, there were some jokes like, hey, which one is doing this, Muse or Arcade Fire? And this album is split into two two parts, right? It's got the I and the we part, where it's like about the yeah. personal issues and what we all struggle through as a community. Um, and maybe, you know, there's like a reconciliation at the end that makes it... Oh, so you you think this is like some uh, chicanery going on We are through that... the looking glass, kids. That will he's pretending to leave, but then there will be some reconciliation, uh, maybe the week before the album drops in May. Is this what you're saying? Are you throwing this out there? Some, some, it's it's brother shit, you know, like oh, like fuck, like we're we're done. I'm never talking to your brother again. And then, like, of course, because like you live in the same house, you know, you're. It's like nothing happens. Like I've had many many blow ups with my brother over like NHL '95 that I thought were irreconcilable. But then again, we also weren't in the arcade fire. So I can only, uh, I can only speculate on, you know, the demands of being in that band. You know, I mentioned earlier that, that Beckner, uh, has, has performed with arcade fire. And by the way, arcade fire, they, they played a show at the Bowery ballroom. Yes. A, a surprise gig, which is from the, we're going back to basics playbook. Yes. You know, we're going to, we're going to do the small show, 
We're going to invite a bunch of music writers who will definitely tweet about it, and they will shoot, you know, camera videos, and we'll get all this free publicity. Did you have to you wear know? a? Did you have to wear like a three piece suit to this one, like with the Everything Now show? Wait, was that the Reflector shows or the uh, the uh, Everything Now shows where you had to wear a suit? I don't remember. I think it was. Was it Everything Now? I think it was Everything. That's like when everything coalesced. Into, I think like, it was. No, I actually think that was Reflector. Was it Reflector? I think okay, it was well, Reflector because I do remember like going to a album release show at Capitol Records in L.A. And this was like people had to like what like people were encouraged to dress up real nice. And of course, that was like even in 2013, people were like, hey, man, this I don't know if this is the best look. <laughs> well, I, I think for for this, because they're going back to basics, Arcade Fire is like smash your monocles. Uh <laughs> Break your, your, you know, your top hat. Come here and cut off, you know, shirts, like sleeveless shirts and jeans. Yeah, That's Dan what... Bachner, man. He's like taking Arcade Fire into their sleeveless era. You know, I think it'd be a great bit if like <laughs> members of Arcade Fire kept quitting and then they replaced them with members of Wolf Parade. Oh, yeah. Where... Not... Or Hot Hot Heat. And... Well, no, I just like the idea of like Arcade Fire gradually just becoming Wolf Parade. Like everyone <laughs> quits and then... They just keep adding Wolf Parade members, and eventually, they're just Wolf Parade. Uh, but maybe they're called Arcade Fire still. I, I think that would be a great bit. That would be a funny conceptual idea if they want to go down that road again. Win Butler, if you're listening, I think that'd be a pretty funny idea. Yeah, because uh, that actually, like, that's a great idea because I think both of those bands could use each other's like influence right now. I think Wolf Parade, the band itself, has gotten a little too like modest in their presentation and like arcade fire has gotten away from that, like, you know, Canadian collective rock sound. So, I mean, this is just like a merger that's going to be as beautiful as time Warner AOL. I-, I think it needs to happen. What is your sense right now in the year 2022, of like where arcade fire stands in terms of their popularity? Like I I'm, I'm not quite clear on it. I mean, it's been a while since everything now came out. Um, you know, you and I, we, we've come up with Arcade Fire. We're inclined to care about them. When this album comes out, I'm sure we'll talk a, a bunch about it, whether it's good or bad. I have, you know, I, I think we both have said that we want this album to be good, and, and we like this new single. I like the fact that uh, this single uh, once again reiterates the influence of my boys in the war on drugs. Yeah. I feel like everyone now who wants to make big-sounding rock music not everyone, but a lot of bands, it seems like they're emulating the war on drugs. And this is almost like maybe the Arcade Fire, like they, they saw what the Killers did mm. on Imploding the Mirage. And they're like, we want some of that love that they got for that record. So we're going to do something similar. It feels like a little to, like that to me. But anyway, I mean, how do you feel? Like where do, you, like, where do people stand with Arcade Fire? Like, Is this going to be a cause for excitement? Or are they sort of... Um, like a like a dad rock band now are they just like a middle-aged rock band yeah i don't quite know because i mean this is really right out of the youtube playbook it's like maybe like their version of beautiful day but like arcade fire despite how liberally they're borrowing from that playbook are nowhere near as popular as you two i think even during the um reflector days they were kind of the yeah, they can play Madison Square Garden, but like they might not fill it. And I think throughout the country, there was just reports about like how they were maybe uh, in over their heads as a uh, you know like a, a hockey arena filling band. 
Um, I do wonder if they see themselves as having been a little right-sized by um, the past couple of years, which I got—I just have to bring up, though, that like everything now, the title track, like that was the, like, I think the first Arcade Fire song that was getting played on like K-Rock and places like that. So, you know, maybe they've got like some momentum from that. But um, yeah, I, I don't know how popular Arcade Fire is. Like maybe they're at that like St. Vincent level where... You know they they'll play they'll be a top line festival act, but they're not really gonna be a draw in the same in that way. Like maybe they're as popular as War on Drugs. Um, yeah, yeah. There there's really no comparison I can think of for this. I think it's gonna be a sort of band though that is way more popular for people of our generation than a younger one. Like I don't know what Arcade Fire means to someone who is 22 years old right now. Yeah. Yeah, I, they just seem so out of step with what, you know, like with the indie acts that connect with a broad audience. You know, normally it, it seems like the new normal now is you have one person who is the point person, then you have backing musicians essentially. I guess I'm, th- I'm thinking of like Tame Impala being yeah. an example here of like maybe certainly one of the biggest indie crossover acts of the last 10 yeah. years. Tam I mean, and Paul Tam is way like, bigger than Arcade Fire right now. Oh, absolutely. And they are in, they're an arena band now yes. and uh and they scan as rock, but there's also obvious pop elements to what he does and also, you know, people it seems like in terms of like how bands are marketed now, mm-hmm. it's easier to base it around one person like an auteur rather than a group of people in an arcade fire you have like all these people yeah maybe it'll just be win and regine I, I maybe that's going to be the focal point now with that band rather than like the orchestra of, of members um and i'm curious to see how that evolves yeah i also think you have to mention like i know that there are other members of the war on drugs but it's still like seen as a very adam fronted uh, oh sure yeah so i, I but yeah I, I think it's kind of an interesting sort of like uh snake eating its own tail sort of thing where like the like i think maybe you can think some arcade fire-ish stuff going on in early war on drugs but now that like latter day war on drugs is influencing arcade fire it was sort of like how like yeah like the strokes influencing phoenix and then you know the strokes coming around to sort of sound like phoenix as well it's always interesting to watch how that stuff cycles through so I feel like we have to talk about the Lollapalooza lineup that yes, we was did. announced this week. And, you know, we, we're we big fans on this show of the Beale Street Music Festival in Memphis. Yes. Uh, which is, we love it for the randomness of it. Like, you go to that festival and you're going to see Snoop Dogg and Lindsey Buckingham <laughs> and uh, the Jim Blossoms. Yeah. It just seems, like, incoherent uh, in terms of programming a festival for a certain kind of person but it seems like now all festivals are like that Mm. like the Lollapalooza lineup these are the top line headliners we have Metallica which is a story in itself because Metallica in the 90s headlined Lollapalooza when it was a traveling festival yeah which I don't even know people remember the young people probably don't know that it's so hard for people to conceive that a festival well actually I mean Rolling Loud sort of does that the hip hop festival but it only goes to like Miami and LA but yeah, like Lollapalooza would come to like a lot of cities, right? Yeah, it was a touring festival. It was uh, known as this alternative festival. Uh, you'd have all these uh, uh, alt rock bands as well as rappers, and then you'd have you know Jim Rose, his whole thing with you know <laughs> Shaolin like, Monks. Yeah, all that stuff. Um, and then Metallica headlined in '96, and it was this big scandal because it was 
seen as a betrayal of what Lollapalooza was supposed to represent, <laughs> which is hilarious now because Lollapalooza, uh, you know, it, it stands for nothing. I mean, there, there, there's no there's no one out there, I think, defending the sanctity of Lollapalooza. Not even Perry Farrell, probably. Um, but the top line headliners, you have Metallica, you have Dua Lipa, yeah. J. Cole, mm-hmm. Green Day, mm. Doja Cat, ah. Machine Gun Kelly, Lil Baby, Geigo, who I only know from festival posters, by the way. Geigo. I always see Geigo on, as a top-line headliner. God, who, who, uh, who the fuck is Geigo? I have no idea. How do you spe- Wait, uh, is that K-Y-G-O? Is it K-Y-G-O? Is that it? Yeah, it, I, I'm assuming, unless there's... Yeah, it's yeah, it's a Norwegian DJ. Okay, and then you have and then and then you have you have Glass Animals, Billy Strings, Big Sean, The Kick, Leroy, Jasmine Sullivan, yeah. yada yada yada, and it's just like who is the person that would want to see all of those people? Like who's the person that wants to see Green Day and also Doja Cat? Okay, is that does that person exist? I, I think so because I mean, if you look at it, like Machine Gun Kelly is like the midpoint between those two acts in that. You know, it's like pop punk, like Green Day, but kind of shit posty in the same way Doja Cat is. Um, yeah, I, I think the one thing that like we didn't talk about with like Metallica in '96 is that you know, in addition to like they tried to go alt rock and you know that it 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 more or less killed the first iteration of Lollapalooza. But like, what happened with Metallica is that everyone would come just as there'd be so many people who would come just to see Metallica and like no other bands. And, um, yeah, it's like, I don't know who's coming to see, like, and, like you just got to flood people with music, and it's like, okay, well, Lollapalooza, I guess I can go see, like, Glass Animals play their song, and I like Doja Cat. I mean, maybe we're just, like, out of touch with how people experience music now, because, like, Lollapalooza back in the day, that was, like, what, 10 bands? Am I like am I misremembering it? Uh, it'd be something like I mean I think there were there were a couple stages. Okay. So there would there'd be like the main stage and a smaller stage. So it might have been closer to like twenty bands. Okay. Or so. Still like that's like we, we have controversies now about like Lollapalooza because uh, some bands are pi- or some artists are pissed that their festival is so their name is so small. Like there was one guy like Lucas Joyner who. Wants to who wants to drop off because he's pissed that his name is so much smaller than Machine Gun Kelly's. Who's Lucas Joyner? He's I think an R and B act. Uh, I'm not familiar with his work. I am like I I thought just the name Lucas Joyner. Oh, that sounds like maybe like one of those like uh bro country sort of things like uh like Luke Bryan or something like that. But it turns out that he. He is mad, like, and this hat, you hear about this sometimes, like, Wale did this with, uh, like, a rap festival. He was so pissed about, like, where his name was on the, uh, on the poster. I think more artists should do this to drum up bullshit controversy. Oh, I love it. Well, I was just looking at the poster. You have Charlie XCX on the fourth line. Future of pop, baby. Future of pop. And, uh, my boy Billy Strings. I don't know who that is. Jam scene. He's uh he's the king of jam grass right now. He's like he does bluegrass, but it's like jam. I got them bluegrass. confused with Billy Talent, who is a very no, different band. No, Billy Strings, man, on the third line, and he's like right below Glass Animals. Wow. He's a big live draw. Okay, happy, happy. You know, I'm not a huge Billy Strings fan. I, I I'm hoping to be converted, but I, you know, shout out to the jam scene. I like seeing Billy Strings, uh, be being ranked so high. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe we're out of touch, but I I do think no way we are not. Just looking at the first two lines, like Metallica and Green Day are really the ones that stand out to me because they're the 
they're the big exceptions on this list because you have Metallica originates in the eighties. You know, the, I'm sure there's going to be people who this year will come out only to see Metallica. Absolutely. Um, and then you have Green Day. You know, I guess they started in the eighties, but you think of them as like a nineties band, yeah. maybe aughts band. They those two bands. It just seems like okay, we we want to get middle aged people at this festival. Yeah, they bring their kids. I mean, that's a bonding so experience. It? I. I I, I, I've like I can think of so many 18 year olds that I that I talk to at work who's like, yeah, my dad went and saw Tool. So, <laughs> but yeah, you think about it, like if you are if you had a kid at 25 years old or something like that, um, you know, your kid will be 17 or 18 to like at this, and you're and you're our age now. Your kid will be 17. So, I mean, yeah. this could very well be like like literally like Homer Palooza, you know, where. Uh, you got the Homer Simpson bringing their like ten and eleven year old kids, and you know he wants to see you know the bong rattling bass of Mike Dirt, and yeah, the kids right. aren't into it. So, so yeah, I just look forward to the day where I can take my kids to Lollapalooza, and they and they can go see Geigo. I have no idea why you're pronouncing it with a G. It's clearly a K in the first letter. Kygo? Kygo? Uh, Kygo? I, I don't, I I don't Kygo? fucking know. I'm pretty sure it's not Geigo. <laughs> well, well, that's, I think, my Midwestern accent coming out. I'm trying to say the K, and it's coming out sounding like a G. Yeah. But anyway, my kids, they'll see like the DJ, and then I'll be like... The hey, Goldman kids, Sachs DJ? Or? Uh, oh, yeah, there's a Goldman Sachs DJ at Lollapalooza. <laughs> See now, now the now the spirit of the Perry Farrell Festival has truly died. Yeah, you know the, all of the stock that we've put in Lollapalooza, it's just totally melted away. All right, we've we talked way too much about Lollapalooza. Yeah. We have to move we this know? episode along. <laughs> Let's get to our mailbag segment. Thank you all for uh, writing to us. We always love hearing from our listeners. If you want to hit us up, we're at indiecastmailbag at gmail dot com. Uh, before we read our next letter, I feel like we should acknowledge uh, we got some South by Southwest blowback uh, this oh, week. Lord. Got some, t- got some tweets, got some uh, emails from people who didn't appreciate us being a little dismissive of South by Southwest. There were people, I think, I know for sure we got one email from a, from a local in Austin who was talking about how great South by Southwest was this year. He's like, I'm going to all these shows for free, you know, great spots on the floor, eating free food. Uh, the, the Doritos tent was amazing, you know, all that stuff. So I, so anyway, I just want to acknowledge that we hear your blowback. Some people, they were, they they just wanted to defend South by Southwest. I just got to say, like, I, I barely heard about South by Southwest. I heard that Kevin from, uh, Aeon Station, our, our guy, Kevin Whelan tore his ACL or something like that. Oh man. Yeah. I I got like one, one of a guy who's like had historically good luck in the music industry, like plays this like really yeah. awesome show and he injures his ACL like awesome like awesome it's like the OBJ <laughs> injury you know in the Super Bowl sports and pop uh, culture meeting at last uh Kevin Whelan well uh heal up uh, he works for Johnson and Johnson so uh you know he can uh, he he can heal up pretty good I'm sure he gets uh like free uh like what what's that stuff that they wrap around your leg the like wrapping tape or something yeah Um, anyway whatever (laughs) uh do you want to read our letter yes i uh, do oh this is a great question so it's from mark from bremen germany uh shout out to our international people um first germany yes this is the first germany letter could be i don't remember we get a lot of like uh australia 
Australia and like Latin America and South America, I feel like that is our international uh, stronghold. So we haven't been to Germany yet. I'm I'm three quarters German. Oh. So th- this speaks to me. These are my people. All right. Hello, Stephen and Ian. Um, I heard you reference Blender Magazine a couple of episodes back. Uh, this guy's bringing up the deep cuts. Do you have any thoughts on the magazine? Blender had a special place in my heart as it came out when I was in my peak music discovery phase. Besides Rolling Stone and Spin, I was always enamored by the British music mags such as Q and Uncut, and Blender seemed to fancy itself as an American version of one of those minus the free CDs on the cover. Oh man, I miss those. What I liked about Blender was the reviews. The sheer number gave me exposure to bands I probably wouldn't have ever known about. Specifically, I recall a band, the KGB, who do not seem to appear on Spotify, and are remembering some guy's band. They had a song on the pilot of the OC. Wow. I, I don't know who that band is. Mark, he's man. Yeah, this is going deep. <laughs> the KGB, like no uh, idea. And, uh, I mean, they do exist. I was like, is this like a band that was like, hey, we want to start up, like we, like we're gonna rip off Interpol, like so we're just gonna call ourselves KGB. Oh yeah, that's that's. Uh, I bet you're okay. right about that. I mean, he he could be pulling our leg here too. I mean, we have no, we'd have no idea. This band exists apparently, and their genres are ska, funk, and rock. They were on DreamWorks Records. <laughs> um, I got a yeah. Weird, rock. This is like a future uh, indie cast all of uh, all of fame type band. I got. I'm gonna find this shit. You know that I'm just trying to imagine now a band naming themselves after a law enforcement agency. For Russia, like it just wouldn't happen. <laughs> or for anyone, yeah. you know, like the, it just would not fly. Yeah, it's like it, rappers it, naming themselves after dictators. You know, like it, I don't think we're gonna get that anytime soon. Probably not. Uh, so remembering some magazines Ooh. here, I like this. Yes. you know it's unfortunate with Blender because I, I don't think they have an online presence. You can't find their articles no. on the internet, so they've really been wiped off the face of the earth. Mm. You know you can't even cite old Blender interviews. You know if you're going to be writing about a band, yeah, uh, which which is unfortunate. I remember Blender. I do. Um, I I think I subscribed to it for. a for a time, I mean, this is a long time ago. We're talking like 20 years ago. My memory of Blender is that it was essentially like a snarkier version of Spin. Yes. That, that you know, and more irreverent. Mm. And I feel like they had this uh, warm attitude that was in vogue at the time, you know, similar to like, say, like Vice Magazine or something, mm. or embracing like sort of the decadent side of, of music history. You know, I remember like issues celebrating like the hair metal era and mm. things like that, you know, kind of leaning into that a little bit in a way that seems out of fashion. Now, the main thing that this letter made me think about, and this is a little bit of a tangent maybe from what uh, Mark was talking about, but it made me want to go on a rant about my biggest pet peeve with music writing now, which is the infusion of academic language into uh, music reviews. I feel like that's so prevalent now and people don't even realize it because it's so common. But you just read reviews now and it reads like academic journals. Uh, And I mean, this was parodied by that famous tweet about the bodies and spaces (laughs) type thing. Goop on um, you Grinch. Yeah, goop on you Grinch. That commented on that, but... um, and I and that was such a great parody that I wish people would have changed their ways a little bit with that. I just feel like music writing used to be a lot more irreverent. Yeah. Like when we started, 
Pitchfork certainly was a lot more irreverent yeah. than it is now, and there were excesses to that. Oh, I'm not absolutely. saying that that was. I'm not saying that that that's perfect, but I feel like we've gone to the opposite extreme now, huh. and things are so dry, and people are writing like they want to be a, you know, that they want to teach like a music course at NYU. I mean, like a lot of the writing is like that now. And I hate it. I really hate that trend. <laughs> yeah. And so thinking about Blender, it just, again, like Blender, it's not like it was the greatest magazine in the world. It wasn't my favorite magazine by any means when it was out. But like the irreverence of that magazine is something that I feel some nostalgia for. Yeah. I mean, the, the irreverence particularly of that era, despite, I guess, the comeback of indie sleaze, you know, like it's not it, it's not totally a, a, a net positive like i mean a lot of people felt unheard during that era and we didn't even bring up the fact that grimes killed hipster runoff which is like kind of the like tail end of the era that started with vice and oh like, yeah that was a yeah that that almost seems like a special indiecast episode yeah. that that story about grimes hacking hipster runoff yeah. we just talked too long about yeah. arcade fire and lollapalooza but i don't know we'll have to maybe that maybe that's like an unfolding story and we could talk about that yeah. in a future episode but um what i remember blender as again this is like from my peak like i'm just going to go into borders to you know to peruse the music magazines from like the uk I remember it like being kind of proto poptimism in that like they were really into Ashley Simpson and like the Rilo Kylie albums after execution of all things that I wasn't into. But they were also kind of quasi maxim in a way. Like it would say like Kelly Clarkson's like a genius, but also have like Kelly Clarkson like wearing like a bikini top on the cover. And like I, I feel like that was this kind of like weird tension going on because it was actually owned by Maxim. Here's, like, the funnest fact about Blender Magazine. Like, like most magazines, it ended up being bought out by its own media company. And that company is called Alpha Media Group. Uh, consolidated all their media holdings into Maxim. And if you had a subscription to Blender, uh, and it, after it got canceled, you got sent Maxim instead to make up for it. Um, which, you know, I, I'm sure that was, like, very well received. But... Here, like like you were saying, like I don't think that this this era should always be like uh, you know nostalgize is that a word? But yeah, I do think there was an irreverence to it, which was a ahead of its time and b kind of fun because they would have these um they would have like entire discography rankings. It was almost like an all music guide with like more jokes, um, and they would have just like these weird offshoots of shit they were into like country artists or like commercial rap or they were, they take, they took emo pretty seriously. So, and also like it was hard for writers to get paid in 2004. Like oddly enough, that's like the one part of the music industry where, where like things were worse in a way. Cause like as a music writer, you can get paid in so many different ways in 2022. Like in 2004, I thought you had to like, you know, save somebody's life or like be related to somebody to get a job paying in a music magazine well yeah and it was uh, it was before social media so like if you didn't know editors personally yeah. it was almost impossible to get into a magazine whereas now it's easy to rub shoulders like with big editors in a digital space like us. I mean, everyone knows exactly <laughs> everyone knows who the editors are uh at, at the big places Whereas then, I mean, you look in the masthead, but, you know, there wouldn't be any contact information for anyone. I mean, you you had to, like, really be tight with 
whoever was working at these places in order to get work. Yeah, I, again, I don't want to overstate the quality of something like Blender. I mean, I think it, I think it was a fine magazine. I don't think it was great. It wasn't like a, the greatest thing in the world or anything. Um, but yeah, I do appreciate the, the irreverence of it. I, and I guess, I guess I just want a little bit more of that mm. now because I just feel like um, things have gotten so serious and yeah. so academic. I also think they were like open to like just completely like shitting on like popular bands. Like I think that is the one thing about that era that we don't have now, which is that you might get the one person who dislikes a band uh, at a magazine or a publication writing about it. And now it's like, you're probably going to find the person who like feels positively about it unless the entire staff is against it. Yeah. That, and that's, that's a catch 22. Cause I hear, you know, we've talked about that before on the show about, you know, there's complaints about how there's, how there's never negative reviews mm. anymore. And it's because publications are inclined to seek out people who are actually familiar with the band or the genre yeah. to write about the artist, which is, you know, a a good thing. I think we would yeah. agree, even if it results in reviews that tend to lean more positive. I mean, everyone wants negative reviews unless it's of a band that they like <laughs> or of a genre that they like. Yeah. You know, like back in the day, people were shitting on emo bands all the time. Yeah. You know, because cause people who didn't really know that genre were writing about it. And I don't think people who love emo would like that kind of thing now. Or, <laughs> um, or anything, you know, any other genre, or metal, or yeah. what, what, any other genre that's sort of outside the mainstream yeah. uh, was more apt, I think, to be to be shit on uh, than than anything else. Um, let's get to the meat of yes. our episode, and we have a lot of meat to get to here. We, we're talking about two albums here. Uh, one album is out today. One came out last week, but it was a surprise record on Friday. Ian talked. Yeah, Oso Oso, you talked a little bit about... It's funny, because we talked about both of these albums in Recommendation yeah. Corner last week. Uh, but, you know, we, they deserve some more attention, I think. They do. Uh, so we're putting them into the meat of this episode. Uh, first, let's talk about Destroyer. Mm. Uh, of course, the project of Dan Behar, a long-running project going back to the mid-90s. Uh, he's just put out his 13th album as Destroyer. It's called Labyrinthitis. And... Um, I'll just say at the top that I think that this is my favorite Destroyer record since Kaput. Oh, okay. Although I do like Poison Season quite a bit, uh, but this is a record I I, mm. I like quite a bit. I wrote about this album last week. You know, I mentioned in the previous episode that I did a big interview with Dan Behar that ran on Uproxx. You can still go see it if you want to hear the record, then read the interview. Um, so I feel like I've said my piece about this. I'm curious, Ian, what do you think about this album? I, I have a feeling. I know where you're going to go on this, and you might be disagreeing with me a little bit, but I want to hear you out. How do you feel about the 13th Destroyer record, Labyrinthitis? So, Destroyer, like, particularly, like, I I was, like, prepared. I was tensing up for you to say, like, this is my favorite Destroyer album ever, and... Well, no, no, I never... No, I wouldn't say that. I would say either... uh, What could put would be in that conversation? Rubies, I'm a big fan of Street Hawk, A Seduction... And, and I'll get into this when I talk. I mean, I feel like he's had a wide-ranging career, yeah. he, many different phases, and that's part of what I really love about him. Yeah, I think with me, with Destroyer, is like I'm just glad that I was able to experience this band in a more formative time in my life because in a lot of ways, and I think you're alluding to this, like Destroyer's like most prominent qualities um, with the, like, the hyper-literary surrealist lyrics and particularly since Kaput happened, like kind of going more towards like synthy, like 
sophisticated pop music. Like this is stuff that like by and large I feel like reflexively against. And that being said, I love Rubies. I love Kaput. I think both of them happened to come out in times where I was like really emotional. Like I could project an emotional uh, mind state onto it. Like they came out like during my last year in like grad school and like the last year I was still drinking. And so very decadent times, which I think fit into Dan Behar's like kind of image as being this not like a hedonist, but like kind of a decadent like lyricist and like decadent music. But, you know, ever since Kaput, I found myself a little left cold by Destroyer's music. Like, I know that you're going to take issue with like Destroyer doing Destroyer because like he's done so many different things like musically. But I, I think it's fair to say that like you can write a Destroyer, like a parody Destroyer lyric and people will know exactly who you're talking about. Um, I do think that this is the album that engaged me the most since Kaput. Like, I thought, I don't remember a thing about Poison Season. Uh, Ken had a couple of good songs. Um, the one from 2020 had a few songs that I enjoyed, but, like, that is just in the pre-COVID memory hole uh, for me. And, um, you know, with this one, it remi- some of the songs, like, explicitly remind me of Kaput. Um, but it's just like i i enjoy it i appreciate it and i don't think about it when i'm done listening to it because i just have so much trouble like getting beyond oh dan's doing his thing it's clever there's a song called tintoretto it's you which is like the most destroyer out uh, song title imaginable he does like a rap which is like very destroyer in its own way and I appreciate it. I do think that it is something that's hard for me to really be mad about because, you know, it's not like it's not central to the narrative. Like Destroyer's going to do Destroyer and it's not like the the arc of 2022 is not going to be bent by what he does or does not do. Yeah, you know, the Destroyer being Destroyer thing, which I've seen other people comment on in reference to this record and maybe even a few of the other more recent records that it's like, well, he's living in this insular world and it doesn't really impact anything outside of it. I mean, I would say that any artist that's around for as long as he yeah. has is going to have an element of that. And I don't even think that's a bad thing. I think if you have a distinctive style, so distinctive that, as you said, you could write a parody lyric of, of a destroyer song. I actually think that speaks to having uh, a voice that oh, is uniquely your own. You know, there's a lot of bands that you couldn't parody because people wouldn't know who you were talking about because they just sound like a bunch of other people. Destroyer is very specific to this world, and I think that's a strength uh, of his music. I, I I will say that I think that the people probably most likely to care about a record like this are those people like me, I guess, who are <laughs> invested in his career. Right. The people who have followed him for a long time and are interested in this record, not just as a record itself, but as to how that record fits in the overall arc of what he's done. And for me, again, you know, I engage with him in a similar way to other, I guess, legacy singer-songwriters that you could mention that he's been influenced by, you know, Bob Dylan, Ben Morrison, Joni Mitchell, other artists who have had a similar arc where you look at their career and it's like, oh, this was this phase here, or then they moved on to this. And... It is interesting with Behar. I feel like a lot of people don't remember that he used to make like bar band type yeah. music. Like people don't 90s, that. real super lo-fi shit. 
Well, and even as you move into the 2000s, records like Street Hawk and This Night and probably culminating with Rubies, I mean, those albums aren't all that different from like a Hold Steady record to me. I mean, especially Street Hawk, he's making a lot of references to classic rock history on that record, uh, whether it's lyrical or, you know... uh, you know, or if it's sort of having a riff that sounds a little bit like all the young dudes, you know, like Mop the Hoople. Ruby's had a lot of like self, like, like it, like spoke directly to music critics, like it, it, by yeah. name. So, yeah. So I feel like, you know, as far as him being clever, I mean, that might have been more of that era. I feel like the last 10 years have, he hasn't really done that as much. It is more, I think, as you said, this sort of evocative synth type thing very uh alluring and i think also very emotional i mean this record in particular i think one thing i really like about it is how upbeat it is yes um the previous record have we met i mean when i interviewed behar he said that the intention with that record was just to make like a depressing downbeat record basically and it was interesting how it came out like right before covid came down it ended up being a covid record made before COVID, right. whereas this album was made during COVID, but it seems to have a more uh, you know, sort of outgoing personality to it. You know, he, he said in my interview that he wanted to make a techno record, which I don't know to what degree how serious he was about that, but there is a sense of forward momentum with this album. I think it is one of the catchier albums that he's made. I, I also think that if you are new to Destroyer, that this album actually does offer maybe more of a way in than some of his other records, just because I think it's uh, more melodic and uh, it's probably the only Destroyer record I would describe as danceable. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he's made, you know, and I think in that respect, it's different from Kaput. Kaput is more of like a laid back. Mm-hmm mood record i think this is a little more in your face um so yeah again i understand what you're saying i think if you don't know destroyer i think this could be a good way in otherwise check out those 2000 era records if you're not so much into the synth thing because he really was making much different music back then yeah yeah I, i i respect what he does and also it's just like okay like um destroyer is gonna destroyer i'll probably make the same exact like simpsons joke about it Every every two years, and you know everyone gets what they want. Well, it's interesting here because we're gonna we're gonna now talk about the Oso Oso record, yes. Sore Thumb, and of course Oso Oso is a I guess you would describe them as an emo band, but I would <sighs> they they seem to me more to be a band that makes uh, revival '90s alternative rock. Hmm. I mean, to me, that's really the vein that they're working in. Uh, they came to prominence in 2018 with this album called the Unihan Mixtape. Basking in the Glow came after that. I think that was 2019. That was 19. Or was that 20? Actually, like Unihan Mixtape initially came out in like January, like January 2017, and it was reissued. Okay. Like he dropped that album because That's like right. no labels would sign him, and uh, this was like like January 3rd. It was like really early in the year, and then it started to get like some word of mouth buzz and. They signed a Triple Crown, who put out Basking in the Glow, and now the new one. Yeah, and did you write about Basking in the Glow? I did. I, I wrote like I I wrote about Basking in the Glow. I wrote about you and Han mixtape, uh, and I did an interview with Jade, the uh, front person for this band, uh, but haven't reviewed the record, which you know is always an interesting state to be in, where it's like, yeah, I'm going to do the interview, but not the review, you know? Because and Oso Oso has really risen to prominence as not just a popular favorite 
uh, and I guess we'll still call them an emo band. Yeah. But also as a as a critical favorite, uh, this new record store thumb got a best new music. Yeah. From Pitchfork, I think it's their first best new music. No, it is their second. They were Basking in the Glow got one. Basking in the Glow was the first emo record that got best new music. I remember. Like I remember that day on Twitter, it was like similar to when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, just a long-suffering fan base just partying in the streets. Um, so now, oh so oh so, first band to do it twice. You are now in Twin Shadow, Wild Nothing territory, baby. So. Uh- Officially a critical favorite. I think we can call Oso Oso that. I think they're a limited critical favorite, though. Like, I think that they're a band that, like, like I don't think you'll read about them in, like, say, Rolling Stone or the New York Times or NPR. Like, it's a very limited critical favorite. Right. Well, I'm going to turn around your Destroyer comments ah. on you with Oso Oso because, to me, Sore Thumb is Oso Oso doing Oso Oso. Huh. And, and, and I don't mean that as a knock necessarily, but I will say with this band that Unihon Mixtape was a record I really loved. I, I wrote about that record. I interviewed Jade for that album. I think I interviewed him before it was reissued, like when it was still just a self-released record. And in my view, Basking in the Glow and now Sore Thumb are basically just slicker reiterations of Unihon mixtape, which to me is not an improvement. Hmm. Like, I feel like the records get better polished uh, and better production values, uh, but they're not as good as that record. That, to me, is still their peak. Hmm. And I have to say with this band, I'm a little surprised that they've been singled out just because there's a lot of bands who do what they do. Hmm. And I think Oso Oso does it better. Like, again, this revival sort of 90s alt-rock thing. I think they do it better than most people who do this. Mm. But to me, they're a nice band, not a great band. And like, I don't see this record being outstanding in any particular way. I think it's really good for what it is. Mm. Uh, but again, I, I feel like they they peaked with that one record. And to me, like that's still like maybe the one record that I need mm. from this band. Because I'm not really seeing them... Uh, expand the formula at all am i wrong on that uh like short answer i think so i'm just very surprised that you put it at like that they've gotten progressively slicker because you know this album the story behind it is that jade uh may like went up to the studio in queens with the unahan producer with his cousin tav and they laid out a bunch of demos uh with the intention of going back to the record and working on it and then his cousin tav died and then he decided, you know what, we're just putting this out. We're not reworking it. Uh, we, we're going to mix and master it. But to me, it's like actually way more like raw and off the cuff than Basking in the Glow, which, you know, as you said, is much more slicker. Um, to me, that is just like a uh, like like almost like a bleed American type record where it is so slick and so polished. But like every song is a banger. Um, this one is more interesting to me because... Um, you know, like you've mentioned like that they are kind of a nineties alt rock band, but like when I think of like nineties alt rock in the current day, I just think of bands who are like, yeah, we sound like Veruca Salt and Third Eye Blind. It's like a very, or like we sound like Hum. There's, I think Oso Oso pulls from lesser, uh, considered parts of that, which is to say there's like a song that. They they pull from Cake a little bit, but also like sh- the Shins in the early two thousands, 
and maybe even a little like early Paramore um, or Tokyo Police Club. So they put together, they pull from like, for lack of a better term, uh, less cool influences, which I think still places them in the emo realm. Uh, they don't sound like, say, like Soccer Mommy, who does like 90s alt rock. Like that sounds to me very polished, very, um, you know, considered very like, it almost sounds like major label stuff. Um, now, like, and I also think that this record has more of an emotional core to it than the past ones, which are more like maybe based on fiction or like conceptual things. Like this is just about like, you know, it's about to me, uh, the friendship of the two guys and just kind of like, I thought, the, I thought it was interesting. The pitchfork review compared it to revolver. Cause it does have that elephant six kind of uh, feel in a way where it's just, trying out some things, um, you know, recording bong rips, uh, kind of doing a little bit of a Brit pop sort of thing. It's not my favorite Oso Oso album. And yet I think it's awesome that a record like this can still be critically acclaimed and be maybe his third best album because, Hey, that's just kind of proof that maybe bands like Oso Oso can be embraced, you know, like, it's they aren't I, I do think that there are bands that do more um inventive and progressive things within the emo realm uh that have not been embraced to the same degree. And you know, that makes me a little bummed out. Uh but hey, I mean if someone's like if someone's gotta be the the token emo band that critics embrace, you know, I'm glad it's them. Well, I mean, there's been other, I mean, come on, there's been other bands from this scene in the last few years. I feel like if, if like, say Pitchfork, I, I don't want to fixate on them too much, but I feel like if they're going to give a best new music to a rock band, it's probably going to be an emo punk type band. It's not going to, you know, it, unless, you know, outside of like an indie le- like legacy act, like if they're going to like go outside the the usual purview, like this is where they normally go. So I, I, I mean, that's how I see it. Cause there's like a lot of other kinds of bands that don't get any shine at all. Oh, no. I think, I, so I think it's more likely not saying that like they're going crazy for every up and coming emo band, but I think if they are going to go outside uh, the usual purview, I think it's more likely to go in this direction. Yeah. I mean, again, also, also again, I think, I think they're a good band. I love Unihan mixtape. Mm. Um, I just feel like, you know, again, to go, like you were saying, you could write a parody of a Destroyer song. I don't. Could you do that for Oso Oso? Uh, to me, they seem like a. To me, they seem like a derivative band, huh. like that. I think does that style of music well, but um, I don't know. I just I have trouble making the next leap to them being something that feels substantial. Well, also, you know, they're yeah. four albums in, not thirteen. So you know, maybe. Maybe as they move along, it'll be similar to like the Shins, because you could make like a song that sounds like the Shins, but um, or uh, you know, a band of that band of that ilk. But you know what? What I'm wondering really about with them is like, okay, maybe it's not like uh, the most you know like innovative, distinctive stuff, but um, you know, there's still room for bands like that. And I'm just wondering, like, how popular are are like are this band? Like, how come? I, I just want to see them like in the small font of Lollapalooza or like Beale Street in the same way that like, you know, a, I don't know, like a B or C list band on like, uh, you know, Dead Oceans would be like they're about to go on tour opening for the Menzingers, which, you know, not a bad thing to do. They have a very loyal fan base. But yeah, I'm like, 
like does all of this, you know, as we talk about like critical acclaim to that degree, has it done much for them? I don't know. I, again, I, it depends on like what your ceiling is. I think that for the kind of band that they are, they seem like one of the most popular bands in their particular niche, you know, I, but I, you know, can they break out of that? Um, I don't know. I mean, again, I think Jade, uh, how do you pronounce his last name? I'm not even going to try. L. I don't know. <laughs> Jade L. Yeah. I guess I'd like to see him. I mean, do you think he'll ever do like the level up record, like where he's working with, I don't, I'm trying to think of like a produce, like Joe Ciccarelli or something. <laughs> I you would know like, what I mean? I mean, like, cause you would think like, you know, signing to like Triple Crown and working with Mike Sapone, who did like, you know, all like uh, the devil and God are raging inside me. Uh, that is kind of a level up, but like, yeah, I, that's the thing. Like I want to see him, I, I want to see, you know, like, uh, like one of those fake indie labels that within a major label umbrella sign him and have him work with, yeah, like a Joe Ciccarelli or something like that. Like, even if the record sucks, uh, you know, I want to see that. Like, I want to see the record where he signs to like mom and pop or Loma Vista, you know, like one of those labels. I mean, I it doesn't seem outside the realm of possibility. I mean, because again, he he is a good pop rock songwriter. Yeah. I could see him writing hits uh, that a bigger audience would be into. So I don't know, yeah. but maybe he's not interested in that. Maybe he's, he's not. Good. That's a thing. He's he. I mean, this guy lives in Dallas, Pennsylvania, and like doesn't have a car. Um, you know, everyone and when I've talked to him myself, it's like he's very much not of the hype. He hates the dog and pony show of record releases, which is why this was. Probably a surprise release to begin with. Dallas, Pennsylvania. That's an IndyCast city right there. Yeah. Like Wilkes-Barre is the biggest near the biggest city to that near that. All right. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? Oh, my God. So we got to do rapid fire here because there are so many records that um, I am like like literally into. This is not just like, oh, I got to think of something I kind of like that no one else is talking about for Recommendation Corner. Uh, just today, we've got the new Cara Cara record coming out, which I'm a huge very good. fan of. I know it's really good record. Yeah. Uh, Proper, which is a very interesting band. Um, who I've written about in the past. Their new record is out. Check that one out. Carly Cosgrove, they were a favorite of the Quarantine Emo Nights uh, back in 2020. And now with their, they're out with an album finally called uh, See You in Chemistry. Uh, big fan of that. Also, got to give a shout to Soul Glow's Diaspora Problems. That's a record I'm going to be writing about. And to me, that is like a hardcore milestone. I don't think it's going to be like turnstile level, like blowing up, but... I think it also might be maybe like a more important record as far as like what it signifies politically and culturally. Um, I'm so stoked for people to hear all those records. There is not a shortage of good shit out there right now. So for my album this week, I was planning on talking about one of my favorite albums of the year, which is Boat Songs by the great singer-songwriter MJ Lenderman. But apparently... This album, it was supposed to come out today originally, and then it got bumped to April, so I'll have to hype it at that time. For now, I want to talk about the band that Lenderman is in, which is Wednesday, which is this really great North Carolina band. I think I've talked about them on the show before. Uh, They're described as a country shoegaze band, which... uh, Doesn't really make any sense on paper, but I swear 
it really translates like when you listen to the band of course they put out a record uh last year called twin plagues which i was a little late on and now i think i'm trying to compensate by by hyping them all the time um but i really want to talk about uh, a covers record that they put out earlier this month it's called mowing the leaves instead of piling them up and this really is one of my favorite albums of the year and it really speaks to the range of influences that this band has they cover drive-by truckers they cover smashing pumpkins from the adore era uh but they also delve into honky-tonk classics by people like Roger Miller and Gary Stewart. Uh, it's all filtered through this band's very unique sensibility. Heavy guitars, lo-fi vocals, uh, a really sort of evocative, high-lonesome type sound. Um, I also have to say, too, that their cover of this song I love, I Am the Cosmos by Chris Bell of Big Star, their cover of that is like one of my favorite versions of that song that I've ever heard. So... I have to wait to hype MJ Lenderman. I will do that next month. But for now, check out this Wednesday record, Mowing Down the Leaves Instead of Piling Them Up. I think you'll really enjoy it. Especially if you're into what I am into, you will like this record. That about does it for this episode of IndieCast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.